Thank you, Violet. Good morning. My name is Hewitt, and I have the privilege of uh, reading the scripture this morning. I'll be reading from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 17 to 24. And I, let's read together. I invite you to take your Bibles out and read along with me. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with the words with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. This is God's word. Thank you, Hewitt. Let's uh, be sure to be praying for um, Violet and uh, those helping build up our global missions uh, team. And uh, so I was encouraged to hear our missionaries. And as I, as I was thinking about my sermon a few weeks ago, it's important for us as a church to support the work of the gospel around the world. So uh, thank you, Violet, for your labor to bring them in front of us. We'll keep praying for them. Uh, just a little update. I, last time I was up here, I um, warned you guys that I was getting sick, and I did get sick. Like, so that night, I had a fever. Um, but we're all doing better in the Nunez home. Uh, so I still have a cough, though, so you may catch that. Um, I'm doing better, um, uh, but I am it's just a lingering cough. So, uh, hope, but I'm, I'm okay. So I just wanted to update you. I've been getting a lot of questions. Wanted to update you guys about that. And I, uh, you know, today I gave myself an interesting task. Uh, I've never, I don't think I've heard a sermon like this before. But I thought, you know what? We've been in Corinthians for a long time. 16 chapters. And, you know, I like to kind of ask, what's the takeaway? You know? What's the big idea maybe for us, if I could summarize a big idea from this book, how would I do that? So kind of an interesting challenge for today's sermon. Um, and you know, as I was, I had to, to do that, I had to, I had to kind of go back to the beginning, which you heard Hewitt read, and I had to go back and say, oh yeah, so why was 1 Corinthians written? What was going on where Paul had to write this letter? And there was a controversy, right? There was a controversy um, <clears throat> around Paul and his ministry and what kind of apostle he really was. And that controversy actually reminds me of a current controversy, which is about the uh, uh, Brock Purdy. And so you guys are, today's Super Bowl Sunday, so you knew a 49er illustration had to come. As I am a big 49er fan, I pay close attention to what is happening with the 49ers. And there is actually this really crazy controversy around Brock Purdy that reminds me of what was going on with the, first Corinth with the Corinthians. And that controversy is that, you know, Brock Purdy was Mr. Irrelevant. Do you know what that means? 
It means he was drafted dead last. He was the number 356 pick. I don't know. He was the last pick of the seventh round. And they actually give him a t-shirt that says Mr. Irrelevant. It means you were the last pick of the draft. No one cares about you. Like, why, why do we even have this pick? Is basically what it's saying. Brock Purdy was the last pick. And what's happened is since he's entered the league, he's done very, very well. He's gone to an NFC championship. Now he's going to the, the Super Bowl. And the controversy is about how good is Brock Purdy? Is he really any good? And so you have one contingent of sports analysts saying he's not that good. His team is good. His coach is good. You could fit any average quarterback into that system and they would do just as good as Brock Purdy, if not better. And so the idea here is Brock Purdy is just a game manager. But there's other people who are like, like, no, no, he's a playmaker. He elevates the team. It's because of Brock Purdy and how good he is, the Niners are going to the Super Bowl. And no one can seem to figure out the answer to this question. Is he, now, but if you ask Brock Purdy, if you ask him, are you a playmaker or a game manager? You know, I love his answer. He generally says, I don't care. It's, I, I'm just here to give the ball into the players' hands who make plays, and I just want to go through my reads, and I just want to see our team win. I just want to see our team win. That's all I care about. And I mean, he, I don't think this is true, but he's basically saying, I could hand the ball off all day if we win. I'm happy with that. Right? And so what you could say is Brock Purdy, he's, he's saying, you know what my boast is as a player? My boast is not if I'm a playmaker or a game manager, it's does my team win? Is it, is it the 49ers? I want to see our team win. That's the boast. And so Paul is actually embroiled in a controversy where the Corinthians are like, is Paul really that good? I mean, you know, is he really that special? I mean, you know, he's not a great speaker. He doesn't communicate very well. And, and so Paul writes to the Corinthians and he says, hey guys, look, you know what? You're right. I did not come with you, come to you with eloquent words of wisdom. In fact, I came with fear and trembling. You're, yeah, if you heard me speak, you'd think, that, that guy? That's a, that guy, his speech abilities kind of yawn or compared to the great debaters, the great philosophers of the Greek world. Paul's like, yeah, and them, I got nothing. But I only cared about one thing, Christ crucified. I resolved to know nothing but to preach Jesus Christ crucified. And because there is power in the gospel, you were saved. And that's all I care about. I don't, I don't really care if I'm a great debater, I'm a great speaker. I own, my boast is that I was able to give you the gospel. And so Paul's question to the Corinthians, his challenge to them, which was preserved for us in 2024, is what is your boast in life? What is it that you boast in? And that question is asking, what is important that you want to be known for? Brock Purdy's trying to say, I don't care if I'm known to be a playmaker. I want to help my team win. Paul was saying, I don't care if you think I'm an amazing apostle with all these amazing talents and skills of oration. I just want you to, to know the gospel. And so Paul is, is presenting the Corinthians and saying, what is at the center of your life? 
What is it that you are looking for to make your life complete? And so the way that you answer that question is the essence of the Christian faith. What is it that you are building your whole life around? You know, Paul says, the Jews seek us, they want a sign, right? They want you to prove through some kind of miracle that you belong to God and then they'll follow you. And the Greeks want wisdom. They want to know that you've studied and you can debate and persuade and And so, but what if Paul were speaking to 21st century Americans? If the Jews seek a sign and the Greeks seek wisdom, what do we seek? What do you seek? And so I was thinking about that. I was like, maybe the answer would be for us, it's it's happiness, right? It's personal fulfillment. You know, I was thinking about, you know, in The Matrix, that's an older movie now, um, but one of my favorites and the whole movie, as cool as the action is, it's really about Neo needing to really own who he is. And right, there's this line where the oracle says to him, you need to know thyself. Or there, I don't, maybe it's a plaque, I don't know. Know thyself. And so really the theme of the movie is really about self-acceptance. Is Neo really going to believe that he's the one? And so maybe that's what we're seeking. Is that what Americans are seeking? Self-acceptance? Either way, there are voices directly or indirectly, in your life, saying this is what you need to be complete. This is what you need to find fulfillment in this life, and you will chase after it. And so the whole point of the gospel, the whole point of what Paul's trying to say is what that thing is has been given to you. What it is you are looking for, the good news is that God has given it to you. And so this is what he writes in chapter 1. He says, and because of him, because of God, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And so um, this is actually um, what the gospel is meant to do. The gospel is meant to not just help us feel like, okay, We're saved to heaven, but it's actually um, that we uh, are fulfilled in Jesus, that our boast in life, the thing that we're most proud of, the thing that we're, we don't care what we're known for, we don't care what we accomplish because we have Jesus. That's actually what the gospel is supposed to do and feel like in our hearts, that our boast is in who Jesus is for us. And so we begin to be able to let go of all those other things that we're chasing to make our life complete and we actually begin to feel this contentment. We begin to feel this joy, this, as we were saying today, this shout in our souls, I have the Lord. And so, um, so I think this means something very important for the Christian faith, and I think this is really what is the biggest challenge of the Christian faith, is that to believe in Jesus, is that that means that he is the true and only center for your whole life, and therefore you also are to then pattern your life 
your sense of who you are, how you think, how you act, what you pursue, what your ambitions are, your whole life is now to be centered around Jesus. He's the wisdom you trust in for how to thrive in life. He's the purpose you live for to give your life meaning. He's the shelter you hide in when the storms of life crash on you. He's the comfort you turn to when your own failings haunt you. He is our redemption. He is our wisdom, our our sanctification, our justification. Those are big words that the Bible's gonna unpack, but the point is to say, everything you could want in life and need in life has been given to us in Jesus. And so I think this is, like I said, this is actually the biggest challenge to the Christian life. It's not to believe that Jesus did enough to save you, it's to believe that Jesus is enough, period. And so this is where I think most of us, most Christians are gonna struggle. And this in fact is the struggle, is to actually say, yeah, not only do I believe in Jesus, but I'm beginning to experience him as the the person that completes my whole sense of who I am. And so look what Paul says to the Corinthians about the problem that they're facing. He says, brothers, I could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you milk, not solid food, for you, you were not yet ready for it, and even now you are not yet ready, for you are still of the flesh. While there is jealousy and strife among you, you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? And so Corinthians is dealing with this problem that is something we should all kind of be afraid of, but also realize this is, this is what we all have to work together to move forward in, is that you can believe the gospel but not grow in the gospel. That is the problem with the Corinthians, is they accepted it on a level, but it didn't go deep enough. It didn't permeate every element of their hearts, so they began to want to boast in other things. Maybe their wealth, maybe their status. You know, it was, who do you follow? Who's your guy? Is it Paul? Is it Apollos? Worldly stuff like that. And so... um, And so that is gonna be the real challenge of the Christian faith. That is our work of faith together. Is to say, yeah, I believe in Jesus, but I want to experience him more and more. I wanna be able to boast in him more and more. And when I say that, all of us should have a sense of, wow, that sounds difficult. That sounds hard. It is. The Corinthians were struggling and Paul wrote this book in order to help us. And I would argue It's the whole point of church. The whole point, why come on Sundays? Why give your life to this? Is so that the gospel of Jesus can be driven deeper into every facet of our life. And so, you know, Paul is gonna um, say, you know, how do we, if you were to look at 1 Corinthians, how is it that we can experience the gospel more deeply so that it's our boast in every area of our life? How can we really experience that? So it goes deeper than just an acceptance, but it's actually what is the foundation of our whole life. How do we do that? And so there's a phrase that Paul uses that I think is the motto. I'd call it the motto of 1 Corinthians. 
He says, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. The word of the cross. And so this is a power that the world does not understand. It thinks it's kind of crazy, kind of ridiculous. But notice, to those of us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And so this is what Christianity is. This is what faith in Jesus is. It's us weak, sinful human beings experiencing the power of God in our lives. Think about that. What more could we want out of life? What greater experience? What is it that we could chase after that is greater than this? That to have God, the power of God at work in our lives, real transforming power, true joy, true fulfillment, true hope, real love, everything you can want from God pouring into your, into your heart, pouring into your soul. That power of God is available to us to affect us, to impact us, to change us, to sustain us. But where and how do you experience it? It's in the word of the cross. Do you see that? The word of the cross. And so, you know, I titled my sermon, what did I title it? I think I called it the, the cross-centered church. Did I title it that? Thank you. The cross-centered church. If I were to say, what is the message of 1 Corinthians? It's that this is the goal of our, our life as a church. This is our vision as a church, that we must be cross-centered. We must be a cross-centered people. The word of the cross must be what we continually come back to, continually dive into, continually live it out because in it, for those of us who are being saved, and notice that's an ongoing process, it's not a one-time event, it's the power of God. The power of God. So what does that mean that the word of cross is the power of God? What does that mean for us? I'll say the first thing, since the power of God is... In the word of the cross, Christians grow in the gospel through teaching. So if the power is in the word of the cross, think about what that's saying. We have to be taught and we have to be, uh, that power has to be unfolded to us. And so listen to what Paul says here in chapter two. He says, now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. So the mechanism for us to grow starts with, it's not gonna end here, it's gonna start with the fact that the Holy Spirit has to help our hearts understand what we've been given in Jesus. That actually um, takes teaching, it takes pressing in, it takes us growing in our understanding. And so the spirit is at work. And so that's why what I say on Sundays is this is not a teaching event. This is a power event. The spirit is working 
when the word of God is opened and the gospel is open to us and we receive it because the Holy Spirit is in you, in me, in the word. And so it is helping us to realize, oh, this is who Jesus is. This is what I have in Jesus. And so Christians, we have to be, I'll say obsessed is a strong word. We have to be absolutely committed to the teaching of the word of God to opening up the word to each other and receiving and learning and growing, receiving, learning, and growing for the rest of our lives. The Spirit is imparting who Jesus is to us through teaching. Also say, since the power of God is active in people's lives, we need examples to follow of how to live this out. So again, my contention here is that the whole point of 1 Corinthians is to say, hey, yeah, you guys believed in the gospel, but you're not growing in it. You're not growing in it. This is a problem. And so if we're going to grow in it, grow in it, we're going to need, we're going to need teaching and we're going to need examples to follow. And so here's what Paul says to the Corinthians after he says, you guys are just babies. And I'm kind of looking for, so what are they supposed to do about this? And he gets, he finally gets here in chapter four. He says, I urge you then be imitators of me. You guys have lost your way. Here's how you're going to find your way. I want you to remember my example. I want you to be imitators of me. So yes, he's going to teach them, but he wants them to picture Paul's life. He wants them to picture Paul and the way he was amongst them. And so he says, that is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere and in every church. And so we need to have the kind of relationships that we see God at work in our lives. So you cannot grow in Christ and experience the depths of the gospel apart from the church where it can be taught and apart from deep community. You have to have people who you're looking at their life, seeing God at work and being able to imitate and follow that, or it's just gonna stay in your head. And so yes, we need the Sunday teaching event. Yes, we need teachers in different elements, books to read, other things that help us understand, but we also need examples to follow. We need to see it in real life. And then lastly, since the power of God is in the word of the cross, we need to learn to apply the word of the cross to all areas of our life. And so I think this is what I'm driving at when I say we're to be a cross-centered church. That the cross of Jesus is the power and wisdom of God. And so we have to learn to take what Jesus did on the cross and say, oh, that's going to guide everything I do. It's going to guide how I think about all the different situations in my life. And when we do that, we will begin to walk in the power of God, not in the flesh. We will not behave in only a human way, but we will behave according to the power of the gospel. And so the gospel doesn't just, again, it's not just something that we believe so that we can be saved, like I got my fire protection now. No. The point of 1 Corinthians, the message of 1 Corinthians is it's to become our whole life our wisdom, our righteousness, our redemption, our sense of belonging, 
all comes from what Jesus did on the cross. And so what I want to show you, I think what Paul does here in Corinthians is he says, okay, you guys are infants. You're not getting it. So what I'm going to do then is he's going to walk them through different issues that they're struggling with. And he's going to show them how the word of the cross applies to those situations. So that's going to be chapter 5 through 16. And in fact, Paul does that in all his letters. He's constantly teaching the churches how do you apply the word of the cross to all the situations you're facing. So let's just, I'm going to give you four examples from 1 Corinthians here of how he does this. So we can begin to see this. Because I think this is a template. And so we're, we're, we can learn to do this ourselves. We can learn to apply the gospel more and more to every area of our life. So for example, we recall that Paul, when he jumps into the issues of, of, that they're dealing with, the, he kind of goes through a list. The first thing he talks about is church discipline. Do you remember that? Chapter five. And he says, you know, um, there's, there's somebody engaging in sin and you guys haven't dealt with this and that's a problem. You've been letting this just fester for way too long. You need to essentially take that person and pronounce the judgment that they are hard-hearted and remove them, remove them from your community. Now, the, now we may say, well, I thought Jesus gives us grace. I thought he gives us grace so that we should just, you know, forgive the person. But watch how the word of the cross is applied to um, sin. He says, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. And so notice how he uses the word of the cross to motivate Christians to deal with unrepentant sin. He's saying the gospel has created amongst you a purity. That now there is a power at work that you want to pursue God's holiness, God's truth. And so you ought to protect and cultivate that. If Christ has done that work, then guard that work and the way that you deal with sin. Don't let it just fester and corrupt what Jesus has done. Actually keep it pure. That's what the church needs to be. A place where people can encounter Jesus in sincerity and truth. And so when somebody is just not dealing with sin and just living however they want, that is a threat that the church eventually has to recognize. Say, this is not, this is not okay. Because Christ died for this church and purified it. Do you see how the word of the cross should make, should, gives us a kind of uh, protective energy. So let's move on. How about sexual integrity? It says, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you? 
whom you have from God. You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. How does Paul motivate us to be pure sexually? He says, because Jesus died, it shows you the worth and purpose of your body. The purpose of your body is to house God. That God would dwell within you and be present with you so you could experience him and live and show people who he is by the way you live with your body. The way you, the way you act and behave with your body actually displays who God is. And also, you were bought with a price. Precious. It was not cheap for you to be saved. It cost Jesus his blood. So don't give your body for cheap. Don't take someone's body for cheap. And the way you glorify God is you show the kind of love that God has, which means that if I'm going to give my body or take someone's body, it's because I've committed my life to care about everything about that person. I'm going to care about every aspect of that person's life for the rest of my life. And then Jesus, God says, that is when you have, that is when sex is holy. That is when you are using your body in a way that glorifies me, that shows the kind of covenant love that I have, not the selfish, take, exploiting love that sex is when not done in marriage. And so you see how he's motivating you and he's showing you the worth of your bodies, the value of your bodies to God. So you don't have to give it away in sex to find that worth, to find that validation. And God is pleased to dwell in you and you want to show that off by abstaining from sex outside of marriage and by showing covenant generosity in sex in marriage. Two more examples here. How about matters of conscience? How are we to view our brothers and sisters who view things differently than us about how maybe we should behave? Looks into what Paul says, but take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Thus sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. And so notice how Paul is motivating us to view each other as the brother or sister for whom Christ died. Do you see how the word of the cross should be guiding the way we treat each other? That's someone who Christ died for. You ought to hold with high reverence what is happening inside their conscience. That ought to be of extreme importance to you because Christ shed his blood for that conscience and for their faith. Don't make them stumble. Don't even dare run the other way. And so the word of the cross is guiding how we view each other. And then lastly, look at spiritual gifts. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. 
And so when Paul talks about how we use our spiritual gifts and how we treat each other, he's going to say, don't you know that because Christ died, he has brought sinners together into one organism now. And you are now connected to each other like living tissue. And as living tissue, each of you do something different that's super important but can't survive without the others. And that is what Christ's death has accomplished is to bring us together into unity with each other. So we're now, we now see each other as interdependent. We need each other. We, are, we can now work together to display Christ only by being in church, in a, in a, in a, in a fellowship together. And so then love becomes the highest ideal. Because now we're saying, oh, I, if I build you up, I'm also building myself up. If I'm helping you, if you're hurting, then I'm hurting. If you're rejoicing, then I'm rejoicing. And so love becomes the highest ideal for the church. Because our goal then is to now build each other up. And nothing builds us up like love. And so Paul's going to say that is the greatest way for you to live out the gospel to live out the sacrifice of Jesus is to love each other because you are now members of each other. So how do we apply this? How do we take this idea of the word of the cross is the power of God at our, in our lives? Not just a power to get you into heaven, but the power by which we can build our whole lives on. In Christ alone, my hope is found. Didn't we just sing that? That whole song is about making Christ our solid rock. And so how do we do that? Well, just a few things here. The Christian life is motivated by the love of God poured out for you on the cross. This is probably a point that we've all heard but can't be said enough. What is motivating you? to live the way you live for Jesus? What is motivating you to do the things that we do? And the gospel wants it to always be God's love for you, never to be poured out. And Paul makes that point a few times in Corinthians, and he says it in a unique way. He says, not that you know God, but now you are known by God. And that's our starting point. Your starting point is that God knows you and loves you through Jesus alone, him alone, not through your works or performance. And so that's always the starting point. Shame and guilt are going to come. Okay? You can't walk with Christ as a human being and not fail and not see how you fall short and not feel things about that. Sometimes we want to be quick to remove any feelings of guilt or shame. Don't feel those. Actually, they're okay. But how do you respond to that is the mistake that we make. And we say, I'm going to do better. Or we say, I'm better than that. I'm stronger than that. No, you're not. No, you're not. You're very weak. And so I think what God wants us to do in those moments is say, but I'm loved. That's the move. I feel guilt. I feel shame. I'm a failure. I've, I've, I've hurt people. I've messed up. 
first thing you do is, Lord, you love me. Everything I have, I have redemption from you. That's the starting point. And so now we're motivated by Jesus as fully known, fully loved. We always start there. We always work from there. But when we talk about the love of Jesus and the love of God, we need to understand that the Christian life is shaped by the love of God poured out on the cross. And so what we have to remember when we talk about the love of God is there's a shape to it. It's not nebulous. Okay, we don't just say the love of God. The love of God has a shape. It's Jesus dying for you. It's Jesus nailed to a cross. And so um, Paul, when he wants to simplify the love of God in the gospel, he says it's Christ crucified. That has to shape how we act, how we treat ourselves, how we treat others. So the gospel is not just a truth to believe, it's a way of life. And so um, we have to continually let our conscience, our moral compass, the way we treat people, the way we treat people who hurt us, the way we treat people who we're angry at, we have to let that be constrained by the God who sent his son to die for us how you respond and treat people, the pattern of your life. And if we don't do this, we're gonna act like the world and our baser instincts will lead to unrighteousness. So just give you an example to go back to our, our root canal topic of money. If you remember, it's a hard topic, but you know, I, I mentioned that capitalism is a fine economic system, but it is a poor tutor for your heart. And so think about that for a second. If you let capitalism define the way you handle money, not just how you make it, but how you think about it, then likely you're going to be consumed with greed and materialism. But what does Paul tell the Corinthians? What is the word of the cross? Where's the power of God? He says, don't you know that Jesus was rich but made himself poor so that you could be rich? That has to shape how you handle your own abundance. The way Jesus handled his abundance by pouring out for us, by becoming sin for us. And so that is how the gospel tutors our hearts. Do you see that? How we actually are now living differently towards aspects of our life that are gonna tempt us to live like the world and we say, no, I'm gonna live like the cross. The word of the cross is gonna guide the way I act and think. And the Bible says when you do that, you will experience the power of God. Your heart, I mean, what does Jesus say? Where your treasure is, there your heart will be. So as we live out the gospel, we're gonna experience the joy of it. So thirdly, all Christian discipleship must be rooted in the word of the cross. And so this means we need to read our Bibles this way. I think we make a mistake when we read the Bible to just get instructions for how to live life. You actually need to look and say, how is God showing me the power of the gospel to live this way? And so I showed you how Paul 
does that in Corinthians, you can always find in any of the messages of, of, of Scripture how it's connecting us to Jesus as the reason to do it. And so we need to read the Bible that way. We need to disciples, we need to disciple other people that way. Right? So as we're helping people walk with Jesus, whether it's our kids, whether it's friends, we want to be careful to not just say, well, the Bible says so. Do it because the Bible says so. That's actually not where the power of God is. It's in the word of the cross, which the Bible teaches. And so we have to develop and understand how to disciple people according to the word of the cross. And you should hold your pastors to that standard as well. You should be looking for that. And I hold myself to that standard. And I say, yeah, I hope I have good illustrations and, you know, I hope I get better and improve my speaking skills. But ultimately, am I giving you Jesus? And that's what we should be doing on Sundays, should be doing in our Bibles, at home, in small groups. And lastly, Christians must continually return to the word of the cross through repentance and faith. And so this is just the idea, uh, G.K. Chesterton said, the Christian ideal has not been tried and found wanting. It has been found difficult and left untried. And I think the idea there is to say, you guys, you know, we're going to have to, we have to walk in this. It's just not going to happen immediately. Where, you know, sometimes we might experience something from Jesus and God and it feels good. And then it doesn't last and we just give it up, move on. This is something that we have to walk in. And God is going to call us to, to remember to believe in the gospel in new ways. That's repentance. And then to walk in it according to what he calls us to. That's faith. Um, so... I'll just close by, uh, you know, I was, again, Super Bowl Sunday, I was following all these interviews, and Brock Purdy, um, you know, what I shared with you about him being a game manager, you know, that was just kind of an illustration, but he's actually a strong Christian. He's actually very vocal about his faith, and they asked him, you know, what are you, what has been helping you this year? What scripture has been helping you? And he said, Psalm 23. And so that's the psalm that we studied in the fall, if you remember. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. And so Brock Purdy, you know, he was saying, you know, there's a lot of pressure on me, and yeah, I want to do well for my team, but at the end of the day, I know the Lord is guiding me to, um, to, what, is, to what my life purpose really is. It's not about football. It's not about how well I do. Yeah, he wants to do well, but it's really about the Lord is his shepherd, no matter whether he plays well, whether he loses his job, I think he's saying the Lord is the source of my joy. He will lead my life. And so I want to just end with that. May we look to the Lord to be our boast when things are going well and when things are struggling. May we continue to press on to experience Jesus as the shepherd of our souls. And may we find contentment in God's salvation that because of him we are to, together members of Christ Jesus now and forever. Let me pray. Lord, would you um, help us to be a cross-centered people? Lord, would you help us to embrace who you are for us? Lord, that 
because of what you've done, we are in you. We have all that we need for life and for joy and contentment in Jesus. But it can be hard to experience that in our daily lives. And so Lord, we have to walk together. We have to continue to be taught by your spirit. We have to continue to help each other and be examples to each other. Lord, we have to um, go deeper in relationships with one another, Lord. And so would you help us to live this out and give us that vision, Lord, that we would be a church that our hope is in Christ alone. So Lord, we thank you for this in the book of 1 Corinthians. And Lord, would you use it in our lives powerfully. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.